First of all, I apologize for not managing my various papers and things here in front of the computer and seeing the obvious Gloria in the uh, program. <laughs> but I do have the message, which is a good start. And I wanted to start with a moment that honored uh, a great human who died this week. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg died this Friday, it was um, just before we evacuated, quite, um, quite a surprise. I, in a way, it was a surprise. In a way, it wasn't a surprise at all. Um, but, but for sure, what it is is an enormous loss for our country and, uh, and really for anyone who supports the dignity of women. I saw something that Kathleen shared today, actually, with a quote from Justice Ginsburg, and I thought uh, that I would share that quote because I think it sets us up well with the mindset that we are supposed to be cultivating in doing what God would have us to do. If you want to be a professional, you will do something outside yourself, something to repair tears in your community, something to make life a little better for people less fortunate than you. That's what I think a meaningful life is, living not for oneself, but for one's community. I think it's really, in a way, what they're saying in, the, in Philippians today, which is to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Meanwhile, other than Philippians, there's quite a lot of complaining in the readings this week. And I remember talking to Sam about the Old Testament reading in particular before bed once, and I thought he had the most perfect response. And we talked about how the Israelites were in the desert and God provided and they complained and then God provided some more and then they complained some more and, and, um, and they kept complaining and they kept complaining. And he said, well, why didn't they just trust God would give them what they needed? He always did before. And I thought, well, um, why don't we all just always trust that God will give us what we need when God always has before? That's all I'm going to say about the Old Testament, but I thought that was pretty great. Before the parable that we read today begins, Jesus has been teaching. He has told the rich young man to sell all of his possessions. He said that it is harder for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The disciples are pretty troubled at this point, not to mention that young man. How is salvation possible, the disciples ask? Well, for mortals, Jesus says, it is not possible. But with God, all things are possible. The parables are always tough, maybe this one particularly so. And I thought in setting up the concept of parables, something that I loved also, this is also courtesy of Sam, who has just finished the last book of Narnia. At the very end of the last book of Narnia, all of the main characters who have been fighting for Narnia all along the way are entering the real Narnia. They weren't in the real Narnia. They thought they were in the real Narnia all along, but now they're actually entering the real Narnia. And Lucy, I'll just read you this couple of very short paragraphs, looked hard at the garden and saw that it was not really a garden, but a whole world with its own rivers and woods and sea and mountains, but they were not strange. She knew them all. I see, she said, this is still Narnia and more real and more beautiful than Narnia down below just as it was more real and more beautiful than the Narnia outside the stable door. It's a world within a world, Narnia within Narnia. Yes, said Mr. Tumnus, like an onion, except that as you continue to go in and in, each circle is larger than the last. 
which may be true of Narnia and of heaven, and perhaps also the parables. Unfortunately, the parables are trickier and sometimes a little bit less pleasant than those worlds within worlds of Narnia. And this is a really tough one. In this parable, the workers are pretty upset. Some of them have showed up for a long day's honest work at 6 a.m. They pushed through the sweat and the toil, but every three hours, new workers joined them. And then even at 5 p.m., an hour before quitting time, at the end of a long and hot and exhausting day, the landowner's manager pays them all, but he pays the last first and the first last, and he pays them all an equal amount of money, not money for their time, but an equal amount. Now I have to say, in our household, this would not go over very well either. <laughs> the best response to it's not fair was on a podcast that I just recently listened to, that the fair is in August and it's where they judge pigs. <laughs> I haven't tried that yet on the seven and the 10 year old. I think it will have quite limited effectiveness. <laughs> so we're continuing to work on this. But one of the verses that seems to matter the most maybe in understanding this story seems to be when the master goes outside the gates at 5 p.m., an hour before quitting time, and sees people around and asks why they aren't working. They aren't lazy. It's not that they don't want to work. The answer is that nobody has hired them. They are the last to be picked. Most of us have been the last to be picked at some point on some kickball team in third grade or something else. It's not a very nice feeling. They are perhaps the unskilled, the inexperienced, the homeless, the old, the very young, the disabled, people who have lost their jobs, maybe someone just out of jail. They're not those who are lazy. They are those who can't get work or didn't get work. They didn't get a chance. I grew up the daughter of a father who had been brought up in small town, rural Kansas. His parents were the first ever to even consider going to college at Kansas State. My dad worked in a rail yard growing up. His dad was a fertilizer salesman until somebody ran off with all the money and then he became a state farm insurance salesman and he was always gone in the evenings because he worked really hard and that's when you made sales calls was at dinner time in the Midwest. They worked very hard. They went to the Baptist church. They were part of all of the various small town Masonic organizations and when my dad stumbled into college, it wasn't because it was expected, but somehow he kept going through law school from which he was drafted into the army and then he served as an army lawyer for a bit. He'd never heard of the big East Coast schools and suddenly he was trying cases against lawyers coming from Harvard and Yale. I realized, he said, that I could out prepare every single one of them. I could work harder than anybody else and he would win his cases, which is all to say, that we grew up with a very American Midwest idea that we earned what we had and that everybody else had that same opportunity. At the same time, that meant being part of a church and a community and then giving back very generously of time and of talent and of anything that was earned. Now there's a lot that's changed since the early seventies. And by the way, my dad softened quite a bit on his strict take of things by the end of his life, which was way too early at 61. But since the 1970s, very interestingly, in this last, um, last week, I just read an article 
that explains some of the income inequality that we've started to, that we've seen in our country over the last several decades. It's a recent article that uses data from the RAND Institution and shows that the redistribution of assets within companies and within our country has shifted wealth significantly into the shareholders and owners' hands to the tune of $50 trillion that has been diverted away from American workers and into the hands of the owners of companies. So the idea that I grew up with, that America or anywhere else is a meritocracy, has been put pretty much, I think, to rest by anybody who's being really honest, which is not to say that you shouldn't work hard or that you can't overcome obstacles, but it is to say that the system is not serving those who need it the most. The reality is that whatever their challenges, my dad benefited from a two-parent household with strong values and strong work ethics and a bent towards education, even if it was an early one. He could have ignored that and gotten in trouble, but the reality is none of us got where we are without a whole lot of luck. The other reality is maybe none of that matters at all, this way of measuring ourselves and others, because it's an attitude of scarcity. It's not an attitude of abundance. It's an attitude bred of a consumerist society in which we live. But that's not the society that Jesus wants us to live in. That's not what we read in the New Testament about living up to how God would have us live, living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And just because we live surrounded by this mindset doesn't mean that we have to be of this mindset. What if we understood as the landowner in the gospel does today, as the manager does today, that all we have is God's and that we are only stewards of those gifts. That is one of the error of the laborers. They don't see reward as belonging to God. They believe, as frankly, many of us probably do lots of the time, that reward is measured by their own work and worth alone. They don't look at the advantages that they had to get there. They don't ask how they might help their neighbors with less advantage than they have. And when they see the master doing so, because they are selfish, they resent it. The first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus did not come to make people comfortable. He came challenging assumptions about firstborn children and about the role of women and about rules and about laws. He's here to challenge everything we think we know. And he comes to proclaim that the love that he brings and the world that he brings and living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, the kingdom of God, is not what we expect or what we do ourselves, but it's harder and more beautiful than we can imagine. And for mortals, it is not possible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen.